And Father, we uh, are so thankful that we get to come together this morning to uh, worship you. We are so thankful that you have made a way into your presence, that you have made a way back to relationship with you, that though we sinned, though we rebelled, though we unholy sinners were apart from you and and stood at enmity with you, that you sent your Son and that he broke down the barrier of our sin and that by his blood we can come to you. And Lord, it is a joy to be in your presence and it is a joy to hear from you. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us. And we know that when, when we open your word, you are speaking to us, Lord. We're hearing from you. And we want to experience the joy of hearing the words of God. So, Lord, we, we pray today that our time together would be marked primarily by joy, that we get to hear you speak. And we pray that your words would work powerfully in us so that we become more like Christ and so that we respond and we do what you say because we know that as we do what you say, we will experience even greater fellowship with you, Lord. So Lord, we pray that you would speak and we pray that you would open up our hearts to hear. We pray that we would listen with soft hearts, attentive minds, um, Lives open to what you would have for us today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, the University of Florida had a good football team. It's a long time ago. And the reason why the University of Florida, a long time ago, had a good football team was was really one person in particular. Does anyone know who that person was? Tim Tebow. That's right, Tim Tebow. Now, I have uh, grown up rooting for teams like the Redskins and the Orioles and the Wizards, and I knew that no sports know that that is a life of misery as a sports (laughs) fan. These teams just consistently fail, consistently let you down, consistently just break your heart, and it's just miserable. But I'm not a Fairweather fan. But when Tim Tebow came to Florida, everything changed for me. I knew what it was like to be a winner. I knew what it was like to say, that's my quarterback. The guy that won the Heisman, that, he goes to my school. I knew what it was like to win championships. And I knew what it was like to have people not like me because I was a Gators fan. It was, it was great. It was great. <laughs> By the time I moved to Alabama, all that had changed. And I don't, I don't, I don't say much about the Gators anymore. But when Tim Tebow was there, it was, it was awesome. Now, when I was in my freshman year of college, Tim Tebow was, was, I think, in his last year at Florida, and I was going on a missions trip to the Philippines. And some of you know that Tim Tebow was a missionary kid in the Philippines, and um, as we were doing a get-to-know-you exercise with our team, the months leading ahead, some of the team members from the year before had told me last year we saw Tim Tebow on our plane. I was just like, what? You got to see Tim Tebow? That's awesome. And... and I uh, didn't think about it much after that. A few months later, I'm in a Detroit airport in a food court, and my phone rings, and we're on the way to the Philippines, and one of, one of the team members tells me, Tim Tebow's here. And just like that, I just start scampering across the airport. I, I'm breathing heavy. I'm on the phone saying, is he still there? Is he still there? And I'm, I'm running through, and, and I get to my gate, and lo and behold, there he is, gator's jacket on, standing 
five feet taller than me, at least that's what it felt like, standing next to him, Tim Tebow, my quarterback, my favorite athlete at the time. And, and needless to say, I went up to him and said, can I get a picture with you? And, and we got a picture, and he talked to our team. It was very cool. It was very cool. So Tim Tebow is the uh, most famous person I've ever gotten to meet. And it was very exciting for me. I, I, I loved Tebow. But, but I wanted to share that story because that experience of, of just seeing someone, like just seeing someone that is larger than life, um, why is that so exciting to us? So, why, why does that thrill us so much? You guys have probably all had moments like that where you've gotten to see a celebrity or you, you got to get close to someone. Maybe at some point you've even paid for a closer seat at a concert or you know, just, just to get closer to someone and, and your heart is thrilled to see them. You've got people that line the streets to see uh, someone in a parade. We see these figures that are larger than life, that have achievement, that have status, and, and we want to be close to them. We just want to see them. It's a universal experience, right? Why is that? I think that it's telling because it shows us that, that we're drawn to glory. Not, not just to want glory, but, but really we're drawn to want to see glory. We're, we're drawn to want to behold it, even in a person. We, we, we want in our hearts to see it. And when we do, if you ever had an experience like, like this, then you know it thrills your heart. You're excited. You, you're not thinking about yourself anymore. You're thinking about that person. You're just so excited to be around them, be with them. It's, it's, it's great. Now, 14 hours later, I was in Japan and on a layover, and I walked up the plane, and, and I see Tim Tebow. I'm just, oh, there's Tim. And I just kept walking. The glory had faded a little bit, right? I mean, it wasn't a big deal anymore. At that, at that point, I was just... Yeah, that's Tim Tebow, and, and here I am after 14 hours, and I feel like a zombie right now, and it doesn't matter anymore. It, it wasn't a big deal. He's, he's just, a, just a man, right? That, that glory faded. But the experience is there, right, that, that we're drawn to it. That the problem is that we, we're drawn to all the wrong places. We, ha- we have this desire in our heart to see glory, and it, it satisfies us. It thrills us when, just when we get to see it. But we look in all the wrong places, and, and these places that we look, they don't, they don't last. The glory fades. The, the excitement wanes. But, but there's a person whose glory never fades. There, there is a person who, when we see him, we will never tire of it. We'll never tire of it. We're just going to want to see him more and more and more. And it's, it's Jesus Christ. He, he is the one, the only one, who... who we want to see his glory, and then we just want to stay there. And we'll never, ever tire of it. My hope this morning is that we'll get a glimpse of his glory as we open his word. And my hope this morning is that we'll hear Jesus himself saying, you should do whatever you can to see me. Do whatever it takes to see me. That's what Jesus would say. He he would say, yes, I am glorious. I am the one you were made for. Do whatever it takes to see me. We're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter, not, not John 20, John 12, verse 20. John 12, verse 20. We're going to be looking at 20 through 26 today. And something similar to what I just described is happening in Jerusalem. You see, Jewish people from all over 
have descended on the city to celebrate the Passover. And, and, and Jesus is the talk of the town. As, as all these people from all over are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, there, there's this talk about this man named Jesus. He's, he's a rabbi, but he's not like the other religious leaders. He teaches with authority. And he's not just a rabbi, he's, he's a miracle worker. People are saying that he's made a lame man walk. He's, he's made a blind man see. And, and now they're even saying that he's raised a dead man to life. And some of them are even saying, and I've seen the dead man. He, he's, it's true. He's alive. He's alive. And so the, the whole city is at this fever pitch about Jesus. And, and they are convinced that he is the king they've been waiting for. They're, they're convinced that, that Jesus, this rabbi, this miracle worker, is the one promised in the Old Testament who is to come, a son of David, who is to reign, who is to restore them as a nation to their place. They believe he is the conquering king. And so as he enters the city, the people, throngs of people, are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel! This is the one who's going to save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And Jesus enters into this, and what this rabbi, miracle worker does, is he receives it. He receives the praise. He receives the adulation. He receives the honor. And at the same time, he rides in on a donkey. He rides in on a donkey. And, and it's like Jesus is saying, yes, I am. Yes, I am that king, but no, I'm not that kind of king. I, I am the king you think I am, but I'm not coming to do what you think I'm coming to do. They don't understand it. From what we can tell, they don't really Make much of it. They just ignore it and say, Hosanna, he's going to come save us. And the whole world is coming after him, according to the Pharisees. They say, the world has gone after him. Well, they spoke better than they knew. Because in verse 20, we read this. Look at John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So this Jewish rabbi, this miracle worker, is is being sought by some Greeks, is what the text says. There are are some Greeks here at the Passover. We don't don't know if they're they're God-fearers, people who are, are... not fully converted to Judaism, but they are seeking Yahweh, and, and if that's what, we don't know why they're there. John doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. He just says there are some Greeks, there are some Gentiles who are seeking a face-to-face meeting with Israel's king. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus' ministry extend to the Gentiles. We've seen him primarily with his own people, the Jews, and we've seen him take a detour to Samaria. But we've not seen him with Gentiles in this gospel. But here they are. They're coming to him. The Pharisees said, look, the world's going after him. And, and, and literally the world is going after him. And they're saying, we, we want to see Jesus. We wish to see him. We, we, we want to we meet him for ourselves. We, we've heard some things about him. And we want to search out for ourselves if they're true. Because, because if, if these things are true, if this man is someone who can heal the sick and give sight to the blind and even raise the dead, then we want him to be our king too. So, so, so they are coming to the king of Israel to search him out and, and to say, we want to meet you and, and, and we want to see if, if you are really who people say you are. We, we want to see you for ourselves. 
And right now, I want to ask, is that is your desire this morning? Is that the reason you're here? Do you wish to see Jesus? Do you want to see him? Is that the expectation of your heart? As you get ready on Sunday morning, as you drive here, are you, are you saying in your mind and in your heart, I want to see Jesus today? Ask him even now, Jesus, I want, I want to see you. I wish to see you. I, I want to see who you are for myself this morning. We're going to settle into the text at this point in, in verses 23 and following, and we're going to see what Jesus says to this request. We, we're not sure why uh, they went to Philip, and we're really not sure why Philip felt like he had to get some moral support from Andrew. But Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, and they, and they give Jesus this request. They say, Jesus, there are, there are some Greeks here who want to see you. There are some Gentiles who want to see you. And Jesus' response is, it's packed. And it's weighty, and it's striking. And, and, and what he doesn't say is, oh man, of course. Yeah, the Gentiles want to see me. Yeah, that's great. That's great news. Let's go. And, and this is Brennan Sharpie and sign autographs for the Gentiles, right? He, no, he, he does not. As far as we know, he doesn't even go see them. As far as we know, they don't get to see him. His response, though, is so full and so packed. And, and what we need to do is, is walk through this text just statement by statement, and just dissect what Jesus is saying and hear, hear what he's saying to us. If right now you're saying, I want to see Jesus, then you need to hear what Jesus says in these next four verses. Let's read verses 23 through 26. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So in response to the Greeks' request to see him, the first thing Jesus does is he makes a declaration. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Point one, he makes a declaration. What he says is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, so just think about what's going on. Jesus hears Andrew and Peter say, there are some Greeks who want to meet you. And Jesus interprets this as the decisive turning point of his ministry. He, he was sent to be the Savior, not only of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. And now that the world is seeking him, he says the hour has come. It, it's like his cue that his public ministry has, has reached its culmination. And now it's time for him to focus on his hour. For those of you who have been with us through this series, you, you might remember a few places where Jesus' hour has been mentioned. Back in chapter 2, very early on in the book, Jesus is at a wedding, and they run out of wine. And his mom is somehow over the wedding arrangements, and so she goes to Jesus and she says, this, this is a disaster, they are out of wine. 
She, she doesn't really ask him, but she basically asks him without saying, you, you need to do something about this. And what Jesus says is, my hour's not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, we know that the next thing he does, though, is, is that he does turn water into wine, and he, he makes the best wine that anyone's ever tasted. And the disciples see what he did, and it says that he manifested his glory to them. So, so he says, my hour has not yet come. This, is, this isn't my time, but then he does go ahead and do it and manifest his glory. Another time, Jesus' brothers asked Jesus, why, why aren't you doing these things in Jerusalem? I mean, you, you just fed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. Why don't you go down to Jerusalem and do these things? Let, let people see you. If you're the Messiah, let the world see you. And he says, my time's not yet come. It's not time yet for me to show myself to the world. And so Jesus' hour is, is related to him showing himself. His hour is related to him revealing his glory. But, but then as the book progresses, his hour takes on a different connotation because in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, Jesus is in confrontation with the religious leaders. And, and two times it says that they tried to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to arrest him, they wanted to kill him, but they could not do it because his hour had not yet come. So up to this point, we've heard about Jesus' hour. We have this expectation as readers that there's an hour coming for Jesus, and we know that it's somehow connected to him revealing his glory, and it's somehow connected to him being arrested. And now Jesus says, as the Greeks come and seek him, he says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. It's, it's, it's time for Jesus to do what he came to do. And, and, and the time is for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time for Jesus to reveal his glory. So, so as we are looking at the book of John, and, and we've gone through chapters 1 through 12, and now we hear this, our expectation now, from here on forward, should be, this is the glory of Christ. The hour has come for him to be glorified. So everything we're reading, saying that this, this is the glory of Christ. Now, Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what what undoubtedly came to the mind of these Jews that are hearing this was Daniel 7, where Daniel writes of a figure like a Son of Man who is glorious. And this figure like a Son of Man reigns over the nations, and he he saves Israel from their enemies. And, And think about what what they're expecting of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, as they're saying, Hosanna, this fits perfectly, right? They're thinking, he's the conquering king, he's coming to save us, and then, and then he says, the Son of Man is about to be glorified. What they're thinking is, this is it. He's going to conquer. This, he, he's saying that the Son of Man is here, the Son of Man is going to conquer the nations. Right now, they're, they're, they're probably ready to take up arms, ready to fight behind Jesus. But he dispels that pretty fast. Because immediately after making this declaration, Jesus follows up with an illustration. He makes a declaration, but then he follows up with an illustration. He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus brings this image, he asks his disciples, he asks the crowds to picture a grain of wheat. Now, I am so illiterate when it comes to anything organic or 
natural or naturey. Okay, so I looked up uh, what does a grain of wheat look like, and and just what's the whole process in it. To me, it looks just like a, kind of like a sunflower seed, and it's just very small. And you just hold it in your hand, and and what find out is that this grain of wheat has has such potential to to bring life to to multiply into many more grains of wheat as a, as a head of wheat grows and then that falls to the ground and more grains of wheat fall and, and that grows and it multiplies over and over and over again. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you have this kernel of wheat, this grain of wheat in your hand, there's potential for life here, right? There's, there's boundless potential for life to come. But as long as it stays right here, what happens with it? It remains alone. This is all it is. It's all it's ever going to be. Just this grain of wheat. Can't do anything with it. But he says that if you let it fall to the ground and you, and you get down and you bury it in the sand and then it goes through the winter and, and the ground freezes and this seed in the ground dies in the ground, then when, then when spring comes, life will come. Fruit will come from that grain of wheat. And Jesus says, think about that. He says to these crowds who, who are looking to him as their conquering king, he says that a grain of wheat has to fall to the ground and die to bear fruit. It must fall to the ground and die. And so two very interesting statements that Jesus starts with here. He says, says this declaration, it's, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. A grain of wheat must die to bear fruit. Now, we will put these two together momentarily, but, but Jesus is not done yet. We need to see more of what he says, because, because he goes from this declaration and this illustration now to an exhortation. Jesus gives an exhortation to the crowds in verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. With these words, Jesus calls all people to consider life in this world and life in eternity. The Bible teaches that life continues after physical death. That's the straightforward teaching of Scripture, that this life is not all there is, that there is continuing life after death. There's eternal life in heaven with God, and there is eternal death, never-ending experience of death under the wrath of God. That, that, that's what waits after this physical life that we all share, and that everyone in this world shares. We, we are all here in this world, in this life, when death comes, everyone either experiences eternal life or an eternal experience of wrath. And what's more, what's more, what the Bible teaches is that what you do with your life now determines what will happen to your life for all of eternity. This short span is determinative for your entire future, for Endless years upon endless years. And Jesus is calling the crowds to understand this. It's saying, don't be foolish with your life. 
Let's look at both aspects of what he says here. He says, first, whoever loves his life loses it. That, that word loses is very close to the word destroy. If, if, you, if you love your life, you're going to destroy it. That, that is, if, if, if you cherish life in this world, if you hold on to life in this world, if, if, if your life here now is, is what matters to you most, and if you live your life in this world for yourself and for your kingdom, you will lose it for eternity. And you will not just cease to exist when you die. You will spend eternity in hell. And this is what we all deserve. This is what we all deserve. All of us were given our lives by an infinitely glorious God. He created us. He gave us life. We live because he made us. And all of us have said, we're going to live lives for ourselves. All of us have said that, that we're, we are going to lay claim on this life that's been given to us and, and we're going to spend it on ourselves. And because of that, we have an infinite penalty to pay for our sins against him. We've all loved our lives in the way Jesus describes here. And, and we've all said to the God who created and sustains us, I'm going to live my way for my glory and my kingdom and my desires. And now the reality is that all people are on borrowed time. If you are living today in this world, you are on borrowed time because there is an eternal death sentence that hangs over your head. And we need that sentence removed. Well, this is what Jesus came to do. This is why he came, to remove the death sentence from us so that we could live. And here he tells us what is required. What's required to get that death sentence removed is this. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is, whoever renounces here and now life, whoever denies their self-centered approach to life, whoever gives up all claims on their life in this world will experience life forever. Whoever says, I'm going to cherish Christ and I'm going to cherish life with Him forever more than I cherish life here and now. I'm going to turn away from my life here and now and turn to life with Christ forever. Those who do that, he says, will keep their lives forever. A missionary named Jim Elliot, who himself was martyred for taking the gospel to a remote tribe in Ecuador, he summed it up well when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life. You can't keep it. You're on borrowed time, and now a death sentence hangs over you, and a day will come when you will lose it. You will lose it all. And it would be foolish to cling to what you will not be able to keep. But it would not be foolish to hear Jesus say, if you hate your life in this world, if you renounce your life in this world, if you surrender your life in this world, then you will live forever. And you'll never lose that life. So we need to hear Jesus' call to surrender our claims on this life now in exchange for eternal life. 
Now, that is a big abstract concept. Hate your life in this world. But Jesus says one more statement that helps us because he, he makes an application and he brings it into real life and he answers the question, what does that actually look like? What do you mean? I, I hear you saying you must hate your life in this world, but what should I do? Jesus makes it practical, and this is so important for us to see. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, so what does it mean to hate your life in this world? What, what is Jesus actually calling for? He says, become my servant. Become my servant and follow me. You, you don't just lay down your life and do nothing. No, you, you lay down your life and you follow me. You renounce it all and you follow me. You give it all up and you serve me. You go where I go. You do what I do. You submit every aspect of your life to me, your king, and you follow no matter what it costs. That's what it means to hate your life in this world. It means to surrender your life to the self-denying service of Christ. That's what it means to hate your life in this world. If you want eternal life, then you must surrender your life to the self-denying service of Christ. That's the application. And, and so we, we started with this request from the Greeks. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus hears that request, and, and his response is to make a declaration. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and then he provides this illustration. A grain of wheat must, must die to bear fruit. And then he exhorts the crowd, renounce your life now and keep it forever. And, and then he applies it. He says, become my servant. Follow me. Okay, so four packed, weighty statements. How are they connected? As we look at all of it together, I, I want you to see something in this text that I think will help us see how it all fits. Verse 23, look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Who is this about? Who's this verse about? Jesus. He's the Son of Man. The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. Now, look at verse 25, verse 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Who, who are these verses about? Clearly, they're about us. They're clearly about us. Now, answer this, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about himself? Is he talking about us? The answer is that the illustration works both ways. And I think that unlocks the meaning of this text for us. Okay, so here's, here's the main idea of, of these verses. Do you want to see Jesus? That's the question, right? Do you want to see Jesus? Then you need to see that he is the grain of wheat who dies for you. And then you need to be a grain of wheat who dies too. That's the way to truly see him. Do you want to see Jesus? Then you need to see that Jesus is the grain of wheat who falls to the ground and dies for you. And then you need to be a grain of wheat who also falls to the ground and dies with him. 
And if you do that, you will truly see him. We will explain and apply from here on forward in this sermon. Just tease that out and apply it to our lives. So, so let's, let's hear that and apply this truth. Ask the question again and again, do you want to see Jesus? Okay, and what's the first answer to that question? Do you want to see Jesus? The answer first is that you need to see that he is the grain of wheat. He's the one who lets his life fall to the ground and die so we can live. Listen, in just a few days from this scene, Jesus would go to the cross. Just a few days from here, Jesus would lay down his life for the world. The world is coming to see him, and he's not showing himself to them. But he's saying, you're about to see me. You're about to see me. I'm going to lay down my life, and you'll see me then. He would go to the cross and he would suffer not only the physical agony of crucifixion, but the spiritual agony of bearing the wrath of God against the sins of the world. And it's in this act, this is important, it's in this act, in his becoming a grain of wheat that dies, that we see the Son of Man glorified. Notice, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is Jesus talking about there? We we might jump to his resurrection. We might jump to his ascension. We might jump to to where he is now, that that he's he's glorified. And and that's definitely true. Jesus is glorified. He is resurrected. But he says the hour has come. Look down at verse 27. We'll look at this next week. But he says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this very purpose, I've come to this hour. And so Jesus' hour is the hour of his suffering. But the hour of his suffering is the hour of his glory. It's, It's in seeing Jesus as the grain of wheat who falls to the ground and dies that we see Jesus in all his glory. This morning, see the glory of Jesus laying down his life. Who is like him? He's the eternal God who took on flesh and blood. He he is the king who gives grace to rebels. He is the judge who takes the death sentence on himself. He is the creator who dies for his creation. He is the one who is perfectly holy and gracious at the same time. The one who is perfectly just and loving at the same time. There's no glory like this glory. And this glory will never fade, and we will never tire of beholding him. There'll never be a day where we say, oh, that's Jesus, and keep walking. He is the grain of wheat who died so we could live. Do you, do you see him? Do you see his glory? If you see this morning that Jesus is glorious, and if, and if you say right now, I, 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 want, I want him, this is the one I want to behold. This is the one that I want to stay at his feet and worship. Then here's what you need to do. You you need to do more than just see him. You, You also then need to be a grain of wheat who dies. You need to hate your life in this world. You need to become his servant. This is so important for us to understand this morning. Okay, because the Gospel of John is the book that declares this truth over and over again. Salvation through faith. Salvation through faith. John 3.16. You guys know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what? 
believes in him will what? Not perish, but have what? Eternal life. John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the message of the Gospel of John is if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Believe in him and you're saved. That's the message of John. But here's Jesus saying, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And that sounds a lot harder than believing. This is not a contradiction of John 3.16. This is an explanation of John 3.16. If you believe in Jesus, then you will surrender your life to him, wholly, completely, all that you are and all that you have. If you don't do that, you don't believe. If you want eternal life, you need to let go of your grip on this life, and you need to let it fall to the ground. You need to hate your life in this world. You need to follow Jesus on the path of the cross. Hear this, what this passage is teaching is that no one, no one will have eternal life who does not live a surrendered life of self-denial to the service of Christ. No one will be saved who does not live a life of self-denial in the service of Christ. There's, There's no easy way to heaven and then hard way to heaven. The path to heaven is the path of self-denial. It is not that your self-denial saves you. Jesus saves us. He is the one who laid down his life for us. He is the one who let his life fall to the ground for us. He's the one who took on our sins, who paid our penalty. He's the one. Faith in him expresses itself in complete surrender to him. And so this morning, hear Jesus hold out eternal life to you. See the glory of Jesus letting his life fall to the ground and then respond by letting your life fall to the ground in service to him. Now, there are a thousand applications to make at this point. So one point, one, no, I'm just kidding. A thousand applications in self-denying service of Christ because even as Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, in one place, in another place he says, take up your cross and follow me daily. So, so, so this, this life of self-denial is, is something that never ends, that we all need to press into. We all need to ask, in what ways am I loving my life in this world? In what ways do I need to hate my life in this world? Where do I need to deny myself? There are a thousand applications but this morning, I want to share a story with you that I, that I pray encourages you, and I pray that it convicts you and motivates you to live a life of surrendered self-denial to Christ. If you just listen as I read the story, it'll take a few minutes. How greatly God multiplies his children through you depends more on who he is than who you are. He could take even our most feeble efforts and do more with them than we ever imagined. This is clearly seen in the lives of Swedish missionaries David and Svea Flood. In 1921, the young couple, along with their two-year-old son David, moved to Congo, which is in the heart of Africa. They teamed up with another Scandinavian couple, Joel and Bertha Erickson. After months of laboring in a remote part of the jungle, Joel reached his limit, and he angrily vented to David, This is ridiculous! 
What's ridiculous, David asked. Everything, coming to this godforsaken continent, traipsing through the jungles, living like animals, nearly killing our wives. You've got little David who will probably die of malaria. Joel went on to ask, what do we have to show for months of work? Malaria, malnutrition, two village chiefs who are furious with us? Well, there's a native boy, David answered quietly. Yes, the boy, our our one convert, Joel said. For all these months, we've had one conversion to report, a child who probably doesn't even understand a thing we say. I'm sorry, David, we have to go. Though the Ericsons left, the flood stayed on alone. To complicate things further, Sphia became pregnant and gave birth to a little girl. They named her Ina, a classical Swedish name. However, the birth process and complications from malaria were too much for Sphia, and the Lord took her home when Ina was just 17 days old. David dug a crude grave for his beloved wife. As he stood over it, he thought, what a wasted life. Something in him snapped. He was filled with anger and bitterness toward God. He felt he had been sent on a fool's mission, and he had had enough. So David took his two motherless children and headed to the missionary outpost where the Ericsons had gone. When they finally arrived at the outpost, the Ericsons urged David not to take Ina on the grueling journey to the nearest port. It was a nightmare of a trip. Little Ina certainly would not survive it. But determined to return to Sweden and start his own life over again, David reluctantly agreed. He left his infant daughter with the Ericsons as he and little David headed back to Sweden. But within eight months, both of the Ericsons died suddenly. So nine-month-old Ina was given to American missionaries, Arthur and Anna Berg. They changed her name slightly to Agnes, and her friends called her Aggie. When she was three, the family moved back to the States where Aggie grew up. She married and had children of her own. She and her husband, Dewey, were given a vacation to Sweden for their 25th wedding anniversary, and Aggie would finally have a chance to meet the father who had left her in Africa. When she met him, he was living in a little apartment building in a lower-class section of Stockholm. Her father's room was squalid, had dust-covered, empty liquor bottles lining every windowsill. Diabetes and a stroke had confined this 73-year-old man to his apartment for three years. As Aggie looked into the far corner of the room, she saw his small, wrinkled frame, his sunken cheeks, which needed a shave, his short, unkempt head of white hair. Her half-brother touched their father and said, Papa, Ina's here. He turned toward her slowly. She shook his hand and said, Papa. He began to weep, saying, I never meant to give you away. After crying with him for a while, she said, It's all right, Papa. Took him in her arms and held him like a baby. God God took care of me, she said. He stiffened suddenly. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. He spat angrily. Our lives have been like this because of him. I was in Africa all that time. Only one little boy and then your mother. As she wiped tobacco stains from his chin, she said, Papa, I've got a story to tell you. It's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Christ. The little seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. A few years later, Aggie attended an evangelism conference in London. and There was a report given from the nation of Zaire, the former Congo. The superintendent of the National Church represented some 110,000 baptized believers. He spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Afterward, Aggie 
asked him if he'd ever heard of David and Svea Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. Aggie said, I'm their daughter, and I was born on that mountaintop. Suddenly, tears ran down the man's face, and he said, Thank you for letting your mother die so that we can live. After this, Aggie had the chance to travel to Zaire and visit her mother's grave and worship with the believers there. In the worship service that day, the pastor read the scripture, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Sophia had given her life that others might live. The story is powerful and it's encouraging. It shows what God can do with a life laid down. What God did through these missionaries and through this woman with one little boy. From one little boy, this whole people group saved. But the story also grieves my heart to see this missionary, David, who, who was in there for a little while, and, and, and he, he said there's a, there's a boy, and he's stuck in there for a little while, but when his wife died, he, he gave it up, and, he, and he, he, he threw it all away, and he said this is too hard. He, he went from a self-denying servant of Christ to a wasted life. Angry at God. Why did that happen? It's because he forgot his reward. He forgot his reward. Do you want to see Jesus? You need to see him as the grain of wheat that fell to the ground and died. And then you need to be a grain of wheat that dies too. But you also need to know, if you do those things, if you see him and you do that, you need to know that one day, you will see him in his glory. You need to know that there is a reward. For those of you who are living lives of self-denial, living lives of service to Christ, many of you in here are doing this. You've seen his glory. You've given yourself to him. You need to know that one day you will see him. He died, but then he rose again. He ascended into heaven, into glory. And and look here at the staggering promises he makes in this text. He says, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Much fruit. He he was the first grain, and he died, and and then from his death, grains of wheat are coming up, and and then those grains have then fall to the ground and die and more come up and it multiplies and it multiplies and and as each Christian lays down their life, more people are coming to Christ from from his life laid down through your life laid down, more and more fruit is coming. Then he says, you'll keep your life for eternal life. Forever life, never ending life. And what kind of life is it going to be? He says, where I am, there will my servant be also. Where is Christ right now? He's in glory. He's at the Father's right hand. He says, you're going to be there. You're going to be at the Father's right hand. And then he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) What does that mean? That the Father is going to honor those who respond to the giving of Christ by surrendering their lives to him. We don't deserve that. We deserve hell. And yet the Father will honor us or giving our lives to Christ. 
That is a staggering scene. Think about that day. You are with Christ in glory. The Father is honoring you in some unexplainable way. And around you are people who are experiencing the same thing, not only because Christ laid down their lives for them and and that's why they're saved, but also because then you laid down your life and they were saved by your efforts. They they came to know the Lord because you said, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live to advance Christ. I'm going to live to advance the gospel. I'm going to surrender my life for him. And, and, and they're around you experiencing the same thing because you laid down your life. And, and then they're going to have people like that too. And, and we're all going to see not only Christ, but one another. And like Paul says in Thessalonians, he's going to say that these people are my joy and my crown. Not only Christ, but the people that Christ graced me to be able to reach. It's all to his glory. It's all to his glory. But what a life. What a life. What a reward. And so if you are living a life of self-denial and service to Christ, what I want you to know this morning is that it's worth it. And no matter how hard it gets, no matter what happens, Know that it's worth it and know that Christ is going to use it and continue to die. Continue to let your life fall to the ground by keeping your eyes on the reward. Don't lose sight of what Jesus says. He does not just say, die. He says, die and you will live forever. And so let's worship him this morning. Let's have the music team come. We will worship him this morning, give our lives to him and exult in his cross together.